So chapter 3 of The Courts of Chaos opens with Corwin at his tomb. So it's sort of come full circle from the beginning of chapter 2. He's sitting there. He's like, he says he's drowsing. So he's, you know, obviously kind of bored, taking a nap, just waiting for Oberon. And then finally, Oberon calls and he says, quote, Corwin, I've made my decisions. The time has come, end quote. And we don't know what those decisions are, of course. We can only speculate. Has he decided that Random will be king? Is that the decision he's made? Right? And if so, why doesn't he just tell everyone? Why does he leave it to the unicorn to do this big dramatic thing? Maybe that's so that people will take it more seriously. Unicorn is maybe considered like a higher order of power, even greater than Oberon. One thought I'm having is that it's possible that Gerard had been intended to bear the jewel to the courts of chaos, and that that's why he made such a big point out of random going with Julian. No, Gerard, you need to stay behind. Maybe he was going to have Gerard bear the jewel, have Corwin go to the battlefield with Julian, with random, with Benedict, with everybody, so that he'd be there as the successor to the throne when everybody finds out that Oberon has been killed by the process of repairing the pattern. And he didn't want Corwin along the way getting stopped or getting killed by Brand or whatever, or the storm as the jewels being brought to Courts of Chaos. More important to have Corwin there. If the jewel makes it, great. If not, Corwin's still there. He can inherit the throne. That's a little bit of shaky logic, and I'm just I'm speculating there. I think, obviously, if Gerard is not successful in bringing the jewel that would mean that Brand gets it from him and everything's all screwed up anyway. And you'd have to believe that Oberon thinks Gerard will be better to fight Brand than Corwin, which is hard to believe. So I think we have to kind of just accept the simplest solution, which is that in either scenario, whether Corwin gets the throne or someone else does, Oberon was still planning for Corwin to be the one to bear the jewel all through Shadow and bring it to the battle. He does this cool thing where he has Corwin give him his arm and he slices it with his dagger to get some blood into his hands. And then Oberon, with Corwin's blood in his hands, basically blows into his cupped hand and a bird, a red raven, is created out of Corwin's blood and basically moves to... Oberon's wrist and starts staring at Corwin. And Oberon says, quote, he is Corwin, the one you must follow. Remember him, end quote. And then this red raven gets on to Oberon's left shoulder and keeps staring at Corwin as the two of them finish their conversation. And that's just like so awesome. And again, Oberon is like a full-on magician, right? Like he's got super magic powers. Let's not mince words about it. You know, he's just done magic trick after magic trick. And, you know, it's kind of a bummer that we don't get to spend more time with Oberon. You know, just in the couple of chapters where we actually get to see him as Oberon, he's really pretty awesome, even if he's a giant jerk and a terrible father. Then Oberon tells Corwin, quote, Mount your horse, ride south, passing into shadow as soon as you can. Hell ride, get as far away from here as possible, end quote. And he tells Corwin, you've got to go to the Courts of Chaos. The bird is going to bring you the jewel as soon as I'm done with it. And you need to make sure you get the jewel to the battle. We're going to need it kind of thing. And Corwin's like, really? I got to ride 
all the way from amber to the courts of chaos. Like, can't I trump through? And Oberon's like, no, like the Trumps aren't going to work. And Corwin's like, come on, like, you know, there's got to be some other way. And Oberon says, nope, quote, the whole fabric of existence will be undergoing an alteration. Move, damn it. Get on your horse and ride, end quote. And that's it. That's the goodbye moment. Corwin says, quote, father, is there no other way, end quote. And Oberon just shakes his head and fades out. And that's it. He'll never see Oberon again. Oberon then goes to start the process of repairing the pattern, and Corwin has to begin his hill ride. And at this point, we're just a couple pages into chapter three, and this begins the journey, which will occupy the majority of the book, an incredible journey through shadow. And, and let me give you just the overview of what's going to happen in the next several chapters. Corwin starts at his tomb, he rides quite far through shadow, like pretty quickly to a place where the shadows start to go a little wonky. The bird will deliver the jewel to him. He'll have a series of encounters with Brand, who keeps coming in trying to take the jewel from him. They have fights, they have arguments. Corwin will thwart Brand a couple of times. He goes to a deserted quarry, then he gets into this crazy land of rocks that are shifting and floating in the air, which is a bit like the random shadow from his story. He'll get to an island frosted with golden metallic trees and grass like aluminum foil. So that's a super interesting, weird, crazy place where he has another encounter with Brand. He then gets to a bleak shadow where he shelters in a cave. The storm is catching up. There's a dude there. Then he has that crazy scene with the leprechauns who take his horse and then try to kill him, but he escapes that. He goes to this wooded valley that's like monochrome. There he meets Lady, and there's this crazy scene with her, which is actually inspired by a poem, and I'll go into all of that. And then he leaves her behind. Then he goes into a a crazy shadow that's like all red, kind of red-colored sky, the the land, feels like it's all soaked with blood. Another encounter with Brand there. The bird shows up again to save him. He gets into this foggy valley at that point where the sky's getting colorful, so he's getting kind of close to the courts. Then he has that crazy encounter with Ig, the tree, and Hugi, the bird, right? And that's the border between order and chaos, Then he'll move past that. He'll get into a marshy place where he meets the head, the guy that's buried up to his chest. He moves on to a plane at that point. He's getting closer and closer to the courts. There's those weird dancers. He gets to some hills. There's that jackal, that talking jackal, which is super weird, that tries to lure him and eat him. He escapes that. Then he gets to this vast wasteland. He's trying to get there. He's lost his horse. He's on foot. He crests some hills. He looks out over and just sees a whole other mountain range that's going to take him forever to get through. The storm is about to catch up to him, decides he needs to make his own pattern there, does so. Brand shows up, takes the jewel. Corwin uses his own pattern, though, to teleport himself to the actual battle, and that's how his journey concludes. So that's just sort of an overview, and I'll go through some of it bit by bit because there's some fascinating stuff in here. You know, it all starts out with Corwin 
deciding that even though he's thought his whole life that you can't shift shadow on Colvier because there's no shadow there, he now knows that it's the first of shadows and that you can shift shadow there. And then Oberon did it. And so he tries and he's able to do it. So that's kind of a cool moment where he learns a new skill, starting to get this kind of confidence that he could do things that he never thought he could do. We get a reinforcement of the geography, Colvier, Garneth, the sea, the Black Road, the Grove of the Unicorn, all of that. Again, kind of a greatest hits of the key places on the map of Amber, Forest of Arden as well. And, you know, we get an incredible description, more dot, dot, dot of his, like, shadow walk. At one point he says, quote, A shudder, a thing not of my doing, totally unanticipated. The ground moves beneath us, but there is more to it than that. The new sky, the new sun, the rusty desert I have just now entered, all of them expand and contract, fade and return. There comes a crackling sound, and with each fading I find star and myself alone amid a white nothingness. Characters without a setting. We tread upon nothing. The light comes from everywhere, illuminates only ourselves. A steady cracking noise, as of the spring thaw come upon a Russian river I had once ridden beside, fills my ears. Star, who has paced many shadows, emits a frightened sound, end quote. And that's the moment, right, that Oberon repairs the pattern could be the moment that Oberon dies even and I'd love to see this done in a series with CG just like literally the whole universe around Corwin kind of ripples at once and and then it blinks out and it's all white and then it kind of comes back in so it's like truly the fabric of existence all of shadow just undergrowing this like ripple of transformation and that reference to a Russian river probably refers to his campaign in Russia with Napoleon, by the way. And in this chapter, he pretty quickly then sees the storm building. He says, quote, I see a mass of dark clouds building, end quote. And that's basically the rewriting of existence that Oberon refers to. So Oberon repairs the pattern. There's this big, crazy ripple effect. Everything blinks out and returns. And then the storm builds and proceeds, presumably starting all the way at the primal pattern and then moving through all of shadow to chaos, just kind of like this wave of cloud passing over all of shadow. And it's pretty clear early on that if that thing catches Corwin, it's probably going to kill him. And it creates this kind of drama and tension and gives him a reason why he has to keep moving and and just put some time pressure on everything. And he undergoes basically his hardest hell ride ever. He's pushing things to the limit. There's one cool part where he actually goes through this um, like tiny village where he's a a giant. And uh, there's these little minuscule houses that he says he could hold in his hand. And he accidentally is like crushes them in this kind of, I don't know, Gulliver's Travels moment. And that's cool because, like, nowhere else in the Chronicles does Zelazny play with scale in that way, right? There's everything so far we've seen in terms of fantastical creatures and geography and physics, but scale, the idea that there's a shadow where people are super tiny and Corbin would would appear to them as a giant, I mean, how terrifying, Corbin on star, and you're like you know, your, your house can be held in his hand, so you're like, what, a centimeter high at most, and here comes this unbelievable colossus on horse you wouldn't even be able to to see it all in in one view if you were that tiny they would just be like what the hell is happening so that's kind of cool 
And he's already gone quite far inside of chapter three, but there's so much more to go. The bird arrives, the the red raven, and delivers the jewel, just as was promised by Oberon, and that makes it super clear. Oberon's dead. Now Corman's got the jewel. His objective to deliver it to the courts of chaos is super clear, and that opens up the scenes to come where Brand is going to keep showing up trying to take the jewel from him. Corwin says, quote, I knew by this that Dad's effort, whatever it had amounted to, was finished. The effects of his act would be spreading outward from amber through shadow now, like the ripples in the proverbial pond, end quote. And what are those ripple effects being for shadow earth, by the way? That's never really addressed. You know, you'd think in the Merlin Chronicles, maybe he could come back and sort of mention that, like in whatever it is now, 1982, uh, some giant storm passed over Shadow Earth and like disrupted everything. You know, I don't know why Shadow Earth would be spared the storm, but it's just not addressed. He keeps moving and then ultimately he falls into some sort of trap where he's stuck and this is a trap set by Brand. And we get the first of four different encounters with Brand throughout Corwin's journey to the Courts of Chaos. And in this first one, there's not much by way of conversation between the two of them. Brand has basically shifted Shadow in such a way that there's nowhere for Corwin and his horse to go, and Corwin outsmarts him by just riding in a circle, and we learn that you can actually shift Shadow even if you're just riding in a circle, not progressing linearly through space, but just around and around, you can still shift Shadow, and so he outsmarts Brand on that one, and that's kind of a fun scene, and Corwin basically says, quote, I threw him a finger and cut between the rocks heading down a narrow canyon, end quote. And that's really fun that he flips off Brand. And if we're keeping score on the scoreboard, it would be Corwin 2, Brand 2 now. So kind of the score is even. Corwin has the jewel again. Brand's trying to stop him and kind of flunks this little trap that he had set for him. And Corwin continues on. He says at one point, quote, I rode until the greenery was bluery beneath a yellow sky, end quote. And I, and I just like that. I wanted to call that out. Bluery. Only Zelazny would come up with a word like that. He makes a reference to Alice in Wonderland a little bit later. He says, quote, What Carol mirror, what Rebma Tirnanagath effect, yet far, far to my left, a black thing writhing, end quote. And that's a, a reference to Through the Looking Glass, the Carol mirror. Won't be the last reference to Alice in Wonderland. As he moves forward, we learn that he's able to kind of alter his surroundings using the jewel without moving, so he gets yet another new ability. And he's getting tired, and he's going to have to start drawing upon the jewel for strength and for help. As we reach the end of chapter 3, the scene has shifted. Quote, golden bridges cross the void in great streamers. Another age goes by, finally far ahead, a dusky misty blotch, our terminus, growing very slowly despite our velocity. By the time we reached it, it is gigantic, an island in the void, forested over with golden metallic trees, end quote. And here we're going to have the second showdown with Brand, and just picture this place, right? He says that there's grass like aluminum foil crunching beneath star, and the trees are golden and metallic. So he's in this very weird golden, silver, aluminum, metallic-y world, very shiny. And 
we hear the voice, quote, Brother Corwin, I have been waiting for you, end quote. And that's the end of chapter 3. And so chapter 4, then, is this second encounter with Brand, as I said. A lot more dialogue between the two of them here. Most importantly, Brand comes out and tells Corwin, yep, Oberon is dead, and he failed. Quote, the effort was too much for him. He lost control of the forces he was manipulating and was blasted by them a little over halfway through the pattern, end quote. And Brand's claiming that he was watching. Oberon failed. He's dead. The pattern is still broken. It's over. And Corwin obviously thinks Bran's lying. He has no choice but to think that he's lying. I'm going to stick to my mission. Screw you, Bran. You know, that said, at some point, Corwin's like, no, it can't be so. And you could tell that he's struggling with it. He kind of believes Bran. It is likely, it is possible that Oberon is destroyed and failed. There's been lots of seeds along the way about how hard this would be, right? Dworkin didn't think it would work. Oberon, as good as he is, is like, it's going to kill me. I'm not sure it's going to work. And so it's not that hard to believe that it could have failed. But ultimately, Corwin just can't give in, right? Like, he just can't accept it. He's got to continue his mission. I've got to bring the jewel to the courts. But he does use this moment to kind of ask Bran questions. Bran's like, give me the jewel. I'll write a new pattern. Oberon failed. And Corwin's like, okay, let's just say for a minute I go along with you. What would happen What if dad didn't fail, and then you take the jewel and you make another pattern? Then there'd be two patterns. Like, how would all that work? And Bran's like, uh, how would I know? I don't know. You know, he's he's not thinking about that, obviously. And and this is just like Corwin's way of getting some confidence that Bran might be lying. Also here, Corwin's like, look, you're not even attuned to the jewel. How could you make a pattern? And Bran divulges that you can attune someone to the jewel without the pattern. If you yourself are attuned, you can just bring them through it. And that's going to be important because that's how Corwin will attune random to the jewel. So he does get an important piece of information here from Brand. There's more back and forth. Brand is trying the old trick of like, you know, I'll give you whatever you want, Corwin. Like, you know, riches, power, you know, join me. We'll remake the universe together. And does the Darth Vader thing. And Corwin's like, no, I saw you make that same offer to Benedict, and my answer is the same. Screw you. Says, quote, shove it, Brand. I'm going on with my mission. If you think you can stop me, now's as good a time as any, end quote. And he walks toward him. He's got his sword out. He's trying, you know, very close to killing Brand, but ultimately Brand kind of backs out and and vanishes. And it's Corwin 3, Brand 2. So Corwin continues with his mission, determined as ever. He's got a new name for the storm, by the way. He calls it, quote, the waves of chaos, end quote. And there's a big inner monologue where he's like, I've got to get there. I've got to get to the family. I want to prove to them that I did everything I could. You know, he's wondering how the battle's going. He then passes into a pretty weird place. His life kind of flashes before him sort of thing, and he goes down this literal memory lane where he kind of sees and hears all this stuff from his life uh, and that's kind of a fun sequence 
Quote, my thoughts danced, memories of many worlds came and went in random fashion. Ganelon, my father, they merged and parted. Somewhere one of them asked me who had a right to the throne. I thought it was Ganelon wanting to know our justification. Now I knew that it had been Dad wanting to know my feelings. He judged, he made his decision, and I was backing out. And then he goes on, I remembered my life on the shadow earth, following orders, giving them. Faces swam before me. People I'd known over the centuries, friends, enemies, wives, lovers, relatives. Lorraine, Moira, Deirdre, I fought with Eric. I recalled my first passage through the pattern. He kind of goes through the Nine Princes and Amber stuff at that point. And he says, murderers, thieveries, knaveries, seductions returned because, as Mallory said, they were there. End quote. So his whole life is flashing before him. That would be really fun to do in the series be fun to visualize all of that especially the stuff on shadow earth you could like very quickly show a bunch of scenes of him you know with napoleon or macarthur or revolution in france all that stuff you could kind of like do the greatest hits of that really quickly as he goes through this crazy shadow that's obviously screwing with his head there's a pretty cool reference here when he says as mallory said they were there and that's a reference to george mallory who was an english mountaineer and he was born in cheshire He lived from 1886 to 1924, and he's the guy that climbed Mount Everest, or attempted to at least, and and died doing it. And a reporter asked him once why he wanted to climb Mount Everest, and Mallory famously replied, quote, because it's there, end quote. So that's the reference. He calls it a, quote, this is your life panorama at one point, and that refers to a documentary series that was broadcast from 1948 to 1952 called This Is Your Life, hosted by Ralph Edwards. And like on this program, basically, Ralph would surprise his guests and, according to Wikipedia, quote, took them through a retrospective of their lives in front of an audience, including appearances by colleagues, friends, and family, end quote. And the show was apparently revived in 1971, And so this is, I guess, kind of on Zelazny's mind. It's a little hard to believe that Corwin would know about this series. 71, 72, for the revival of this series, that would come basically after the start of Nine Princes and Amber, so that can't be it. So you're now having to go back to the original 48 to 52, sure. I think post-World War II, Corwin, we have him kind of placed in the U.S., you know, at the sites of the different rocket launches, and he's sort of part of the Cold War, so fine, he could have seen this documentary on TV around 1950. And then Corwin finally comes through this kind of crazy retrospective on his life, this crazy shadow, and he emerges and finds himself in a mountainous area and says, quote, shortly thereafter, I came to the cave that I desired, end quote. So he makes a cave appear with his shadow shifting, and he goes inside to take a rest. He tends to the horse and goes to sleep. He's tired. It's been pretty pretty rough. Hell ride. Two different encounters with Brand, and he's exhausted. Closes his eyes and, and blacks out, and that's the end of chapter four. Now, with chapter five, 
Corwin says, quote, I was awakened by a sense of presence, end quote. And this is the guy in the cave with Corwin. And we don't have a name for this character. He reminds me a little bit of the hermit called Dave from the Merlin Chronicles. But anyway, we'll just call him a hermit. He speaks in Thari and he says, quote, peace. I have but taken refuge from the storm. May I share your cave, end quote. And Corwin's like, what storm? That sounds kind of familiar. And he goes out and looks, and sure enough, there's a a storm coming. Corwin's wary. He knows that this could be brand in disguise. He knows people can shapeshift, so he can't trust anybody. But the guy seems harmless enough, and Corwin's on the defensive. So he lets him in. They talk a little bit about the storm. And Corwin realizes that Star's gone. His, His horse has disappeared, and, you know, the guy's like, well, maybe it just wandered off, and Corwin's like, mm, Star wouldn't do that. So now we have a problem. The horse is missing. The storm that the guy is hiding from, by the way, this hermit, it is just sort of a normal storm, apparently, and Corwin uses the jewel to kind of divert it and clear up the storm, and the jewel is pulsing. It's giving off light, and this hermit obviously is super curious about that. And he says, quote, you make me think of that line from the holy book. The archangel Corwin shall pass before the storm, lightning upon his breast. You would not be named Corwin, would you? End quote. And this is like really cool. He's in this place super, super far from Amber. And there's an idea of a holy book, a prophecy, the archangel Corwin. And this is now starting to kind of come into the next couple of chapters that for this shadow, Corwin's journey, his his travel from Amber to Chaos, his efforts to save the universe. It, it, there's a prophecy that, that Corwin's become kind of like this biblical figure. Like, that's fascinating. And this hermit quotes the rest of this part of the holy book and says, quote, when asked where he travels, he shall say to the ends of the earth where he goes, not knowing what enemy will aid him against another enemy, nor whom the horn will touch, end quote. And it's a bit of scripture, right? And a premonition, what enemy will aid him against another enemy? This is referring to Cain, right? Who, who he thinks of as an enemy, but ultimately is the one who kills Brand. So Cain has stabbed Corwin, We'll learn that. Cain's basically been an enemy of Corwin from the beginning. We find out later that he's the one who stabbed him in sign of the unicorn. But then that enemy will aid Corwin against the true enemy, which is Bran. So that's what the prophecy is referring to, this scripture. But the other part, when asked where he travels, he shall say to the ends of the earth. Of course, that's what Corwin will say as he quotes his own prophecy. And we'll get to that in a minute. But Corwin just kind of parks this idea that he is now a prophet in this place and decides he's going to go look for his horse. And he finds the horse, and the horse star has been taken by, quote, small man-like forms, end quote. And this next sequence is bizarre. It's bizarre even to Corwin. It's definitely bizarre to the reader. And essentially what's happened is that a group of leprechauns has stolen star. And they've taken him into a cave, and they've closed this big stone door behind them. And Corwin's got to get in there and get his horse back. And it's it's really fascinating. I counted them. 
Zelazny uses 400 words to describe Corwin opening up this stone door. It just gets incredibly specific about his fingers going through the grooves and how it's kind of rigged, and he's got to do this and use his shoulder and his feet, and ultimately he's able to pry this door loose. And the point he's making is that there must be some magic here, right? These leprechauns are half his size. They can't possibly have moved this big piece of stone. Corwin, Prince of Amber, legendary strength, all that. Even he has to take a really long time to do it. But he does, he gets his sword out, and he kind of goes through this corridor into this, like, hobbit hole, if you will, and he hears music, and in fact, these leprechauns are having kind of a party. It's like a pub scene. He says, quote, I beheld a scene out of some drunken Irishman's dream in a smoky, torch-lit hall, hordes of meter-high people, red-faced and green-clad, dancing to the music or quaffing what appeared to be mugs of ale while stamping their feet, slapping tabletops and each other, grinning, laughing, and shouting, end quote. And it turns out Star's there, and they're planning to eat Star. They've got like a fire going, there's like a chef there, he's got knives and whatever. And Corwin shows up, he's like, I want my horse back. You might want to go check out your door. One of the guys goes and looks and comes back and is like, uh, yeah, we should give the guy his horse. And they do, but they invite him for a drink. And and again, Corwin is wary, but for whatever reason, he agrees to sit down with them and have a drink as long as they kind of keep their distance and he's got a sword out and he's got star and everything seems okay. But like, really, Corwin? Really, you're going to hang out and have a drink with these guys? So obviously, he's already falling under some kind of spell. And sure enough, it gets dangerous. Initially, it's a casual conversation between him and, like, I guess their leader. The guy's apologizing. If we'd known, you know, please, we're so sorry. We, you know, we'll be fine. We won't have the horse, but we'll, we have plenty to eat. Don't worry. Corwin says, quote, I shook my head and laughed. The thought of cavorting in this place brought me images out of swift end quote. And that's a reference to Jonathan Swift, the author, 1667 to 1745. He was born in Dublin and wrote Gulliver's Travels, so that's what he's referring to. And the guy he's sitting with takes out a pipe, he's smoking, they're drinking, and sure enough, there's some kind of spell, and Corwin's sort of like gets his nervous system like kind of frozen as he sees the crowd of leprechauns slowly kind of turn on him. And this would be like an awesome movie moment where the music is still playing. They're all pretending like they're still happy, but then a few of them just like start to turn knives out grimaces on their face. And they're creeping toward Corwin. They're clearly murderous. They're going to kill him, kill star, eat them both probably. And Corwin has to draw upon the jewel to freeze them all in place and sort of get his senses back and it works. And now we have Corwin the magician, not just Corwin the fighter, right? He's able to use the jewel in really interesting ways. He freezes all of them. They all stop. The music stops, gets his horse, turns, leaves the place, and says, quote, Moments later, the pipes came in on the tune. It seemed as though it mattered not at all whether they had succeeded or failed in their designs against me. The party was going to go on, end quote. And he hears them in the distance, the fiddles, and it's just sort of super fun and also kind of super creepy. These leprechauns trying to do their tricks, horse thieves, murderers, but then like, no big deal. We'll just wait for the next schmuck to come along. 
And one of them runs out and shouts after Corwin, where do you travel? And Corwin says, quote, to the ends of the earth. And the guy says, fare thee well, Corwin. And Corwin says, I wave to him. Why not? Sometimes it's damned hard to tell the dancer from the dance, end quote. And that's the end of chapter five. And it's really cool. So Corwin's like, I've heard about the prophecy, the scripture. It seems like BS to me. But then the guy says, where do you travel? Why not? I'll play along to the ends of the earth. So he's playing into the prophecy, making it happen. And that line, sometimes it's damned hard to tell the dancer from the dance. So that's a really cool reference. So it's, it's a reference to Yeats, William Butler Yeats, the poet. And the line comes from the poem Among School Children, which was written around 1926. And we know Zelazny was a poet. We know he's super learned and was a big fan of, you know, Shakespeare, but all the way to Yeats and, and everybody in between, particularly English literature. And in this poem, Among School Children, Yeats asks, quote, how can we know the dancer from the dance, end quote. And a lot of people interpret that line as an observation that some creative acts are so intimately connected to the artist who created them that separating the two is super difficult. The dancer from the dance. It's about separating the artist from the art. And here, Zelazny is using the line to mean that it's difficult to tell the difference between Corwin and this prophecy. Did, did he just fulfill the prophecy because someone told him of it? Or would he have said that line anyway, even if no one had told him of it? Corwin's the dancer. The prophecy is the dance. Very hard to pull the two apart. And it's, it's really cool. And that's how he ends chapter five. Mm-hmm. 